This is Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association's section of Dispute Resolution. I'm one of your hosts, Larry Schooler. I'm Director of Consensus Building and Community Engagement at the consulting firm CD&P. Our spring conference is fast approaching April 22nd to 25th in New Orleans. Whether you're new to dispute resolution practice or have been practicing for decades, the 2020 ABA section of Dispute Resolution Spring Conference has something for you. The conference begins with the Symposium on ADR in the Courts and will feature over 70 concurrent sessions, continuing legal education, and multiple dedicated networking opportunities, culminating in the Legal Educators Colloquium on Saturday, April 25th. In this episode, you'll hear from one of our fascinating conference presenters. Before we get to our conversation, we want you to know that support for our conference comes from several generous sponsors, including the American Arbitration Association, JAMS, Miles Mediation and Arbitration, the Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution at UC Hastings, and the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at the Pepperdine University School of Law. And now to our guest. Douglas Witten founded his practice Innovative ADR in 2015 and draws on his prior experience with workers' compensation and health care in his bilingual mediation and arbitration practice. He spoke with me about how his fluency in Spanish has affected the way his practice has evolved and how others in the field can position themselves to work in an increasingly diverse world. Well, Doug Witten, welcome to Resolutions. Good to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be uh, talking with you today. It seems from what I've read about you that you took a, a very interesting, somewhat circuitous route to dispute resolution as a field of practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that path? Sure. Um, well, I started my career as a healthcare corporate attorney working with some big law firms uh, in the Atlanta area. And, oh, about uh, six or seven years into it, I, I started hearing about this practice of mediation and arbitration in the field of ADR. And I started thinking that there has to be a better way to resolve disputes. And I, as a sixth or seventh year associate, I, I wanted to figure out how I could get involved and, and participate in this area of, of uh, practice. And I did a lot of research and made my way to a state agency in Georgia. Started my practice um, in Atlanta in big, big law firms working in the healthcare corporate area. And after five years of practice or so, I became very interested in, in the dispute resolution field and made my way to a state agency here in Georgia that has a dedicated dispute resolution division and, and workers' compensation in that agency and learned how to be a mediator and just got a lot of repetitions and practical training in, in learning how to mediate and was with the state agency for about 13 years as a mediator and also as a division director in the appeals division and about Four years ago, I started a private practice in mediation arbitration. What, what were you likely to see as a dispute resolution neutral working in workers' compensation? What would be a, a typical case, typical parties? Well, typically you have somebody who gets injured on the job and they will 
become part of the workers' compensation system when they file a claim for workers' compensation benefits. And on the other side will typically be their employer and usually an insurance company who's um, you know, representing the employer's interests. And then at mediation, you'll have the injured party and then you'll have the employer and their insurer. And usually both sides are represented by counsel. And the mediation can be to settle an entire claim. It can be used to attempt to resolve particular issues within a claim. But typically, the mediation will be an attempt to settle the claim for a lump sum as opposed to having the claim continue for years or potentially be in litigation. And I, I'm sure you saw you know, hundreds, if not thousands of cases. I just wonder if, if any st stand out to you as it relates to knowing this was important work that you needed to be doing, knowing that this was something that you were doing that was really valuable to society or to uh, the interests of the parties? Well, what you realize when you work with, with injured workers is these injuries um, affect people in so many ways. They can really affect their ability to provide for a family. They are people that um, can be in pain for an extended period of time. And these things start to weigh on people emotionally. And then if you throw litigation on top of what's already a very difficult situation, you've got a, a fight over medical treatment, or you've got a fight over a person's uh, ability to receive income benefits while they're injured and unable to work, these things are, are so central to people's well-being. And on the other side, employers, they have workers that go out and they are obligated under the law to take care of them in certain ways. And, you know, for them, it's a business matter of being in litigation that, that's costly, that, that takes a lot of time. It can take uh, people from their normal job functions to be involved in litigation. And I just found over time that if there's an ability for the parties to reach a resolution, it will typically save people the time, the money, and the emotional strain that's all wrapped up in these injuries. And you mentioned the emotional strain, and I wonder how common it was for you to see resolutions to some of these cases that were less focused on the monetary aspect and more focused on the emotional, which is to say, you know, the employee or the person filing the claim really just wanted to hear an apology or hear accountability taken or just some, you know, what some may call softer uh, term of, of agreement or, or settlement. I think, yes, that, I mean, you know, most of the times when you have people that are in pain and you have people that have lost their income, you're going to get these emotional issues. Um, they're going to be, you know, within the typical lawsuit, there's, there's redress in terms of money. And in mediation, when you're trying to settle a case, yes, it's about monetary. There's a monetary component central to all of these negotiations. But there is also, I think, the opportunity for people to face each other and for, let's say, an injured worker who feels like they're they've been robbed of something. They've been robbed of their ability to earn a living. They've, something's happened to them that wasn't necessarily their fault. And that becomes 
you know, it affects their identity as, as a productive, feeling like they're productive and being able to provide for a family. And, and sometimes mediation gives them an opportunity to get these things off of their chest, express these things to the other side. And sometimes an apology, it's amazing. Some, sometimes you'll see how impactful that can be just to hear that from somebody sitting across the table saying, I'm sorry this happened to you and we're going to do whatever we can. We can't go back and undo what happened to you, but we can try to put something together that will help both sides move forward as best we can. I wonder if you could speak to any trends in the way these disputes are getting resolved. I, I wonder first if, if we're seeing a migration of more and more of these claims getting resolved in say mediation or arbitration. I'm also curious as to whether some of the trends we're seeing around employees versus contractors play any sort of a um, role in the way that these disputes get handled. Because of course, I would think that you know contractors often aren't covered in the same way as employees would be. And, and I wonder if you're seeing any of those uh, trends play out in your practice. Well, first of all, yes, as to the last question, I think the determination or how, how, how a person is classified as a worker, as an employee or as an independent contractor, that can become very central to whether or not they're going to be covered under the workers' compensation system, at least in Georgia. And I imagine it's similar issues in other states. But that, that is something that often will be a um, threshold issue that will need to be determined either through litigation or perhaps in mediation, we can work around knowing that there's different arguments on each side. Can we, can we kind of agree to disagree or just sort of reach some sort of a settlement that reflects an understanding that these are difficult questions because they're very fact specific for judges to determine whether someone truly is an independent contractor or an employee and, and it seems like with the growing number of people that are in the gig economy or working as independent contractors, this is something that the law is going to have to adapt over time and, and, and you know, become better able to uh, manage what's become the reality of our, of our, of our workplace. And as far as trends in mediating these cases, um, I would say one thing, it's been a tremendous shift over the past 10 or 15 years from litigation to mediation. I think where I'm located here in Georgia, um, the, the lawyers and the, and the industry as a whole has really embraced mediation as a way of settling cases and avoiding the litigation process. And I know from having worked with the state for a number of years and being so involved in the system, I know there's just a tremendous increase in mediation. It's become so much part of the way people as a practice handle these cases and the shift away from the number of cases that are going through the judicial or administrative process. It's, it's been amazing and I'm really, frankly, proud of our of our workers' compensation community and, and, and taking the mediation 
and using it so effectively to resolve these cases? So I think we certainly live in, a, in an increasingly diverse country in the United States, an increasingly diverse world, you might say. And I'm sure that your area of practice is very much uh, in tune with that. I would imagine that you often get parties who are filing claims who um, don't feel most comfortable in English as their first language. And it's funny, as I was preparing for this episode and we were going to talk about the experience of, of multilingual mediation, my first thought was, well, he speaks healthcare and he speaks workers' <laughs> compensation. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, potentially mediating in a second language, tell me, I guess, first how, how that became part of your work and, and kind of how it manifests itself in your practice today. Well, I think you're exactly right that our, our culture is becoming increasingly, increasingly multi, multicultural. Um, and I would say right now, maybe two thirds of my mediations involve people that do not speak English as their first language. And this is something that I, I've, I found to be, um, you know, a very interesting niche because it helps so many people that come to the process and, you know, the, the legal process itself is, is like, like you kind of referenced, that's a different language in and of itself, but then to throw on an actual language barrier, language challenge on top of what can be a scary or a foreign system it's just something that can be a challenge for, for mediation if, if you cannot bridge that gap and help people through the language issues. So uh, in the workers' compensation area in particular, I find that, I find that people are appreciative and can use a mediator that happens to be able to speak, in this case, mostly Spanish and English. And I really enjoy that part of my practice probably more than any other. So, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into, you know, something that sounds like a, a sitcom or a parody or something, but I mean, play this out for me. I mean, could you have a situation where, you know, you're saying something to a client, you know, in Espanol and then you're saying, well, what I just said to them was because the other party may not speak Spanish. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm wondering how you manage the flow of information back and forth when you might have multiple languages being used in the same session and you're not, it sounds like, I'm assuming you're not using interpreters for the different sides. You yourself are kind of functioning almost in that role, but that's why I'm asking the question. Well, and there are so many different ways to address the issues that come up. And I've seen so many different varieties and so many different approaches that I would say there's no, there's certainly no one size fits all because people come in with different uh, abilities in the language. And sometimes I'm dealing with bilingual attorneys. Sometimes I'm dealing with let's say a party who brings a family member who might be bilingual, or sometimes I'll be dealing with a party that does have a professional interpreter, or they bring a paralegal or a legal assistant who happens to be bilingual. So I typically don't know what I'm gonna get until I 
walk into the into the room. So I've got to be flexible and I've got to be creative and I've got to identify where the barriers are and figure out how I can make sure everybody understands the process, everybody is an active participant that needs to be an active participant, and how both sides are comfortable knowing that they've had an opportunity to participate and be heard and understood and feel good about the process overall. So I don't typically like to be the quote interpreter because you know frankly interpreting is very difficult and that's a skill unto itself and I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for professional interpreters because just because you can speak to the languages does not mean you are a capable interpreter. So I typically do not like to be in that role. I can do it if I have to but that is not my my preference. And as a bilingual mediator, I, I see all uh, skill levels of interpreters that come in and I, I have to correct them sometimes. I have to ask them to repeat things or I have to step in sometimes because I need to make sure that everybody is accurately hearing what's being said and they're being understood and and their message is being communicated to the other side because communication is the core of what we do. I just wonder how, I know that there have been circumstances, at least in my practice, where my own cultural background plays a role in whether the client feels that uh, I would be the best neutral to handle a case. And, and so given this particular niche, I just wonder how that comes into play in your practice. Well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. And I will say that I am originally from South Florida. I'm from Miami. I started off you know, growing up in an area that has a lot of um, Latin American influence. And I do have some distant relatives from Cuba and from Mexico as well. And I try to make sure that people appreciate that I am trying to connect with them and sometimes it's through language right off the bat sometimes I will ease into it with people and you know it's 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 one of those things that when people are surprised when I start connecting with them by language it, it's almost like I can see their their eyes just uh, open up wide and they're just so it's a it's an instant comfort for them to realize that they can talk to somebody directly and someone is there to actually listen to them and it, sometimes I feel like maybe it's almost more meaningful to them to see that I'm making that extra effort and that I care enough to um, be there to communicate with them and help them through the process. And you sort of anticipated the, the question I was going to ask next, which is, you know, in, in advocacy for the devil, if, if you're mediating with two parties, one of whom is most comfortable in Spanish, and that party either has a bilingual attorney or an interpreter that they've brought with them, which it sounds like is, is ideal um, given the situation, what is the then added benefit, the added value of the mediator, him or herself, being fluent in that second language if they've got somebody there that's meant to kind of bridge the gap uh, between the languages? That's also a very good question. And 
I think the first distinction you have to make is whether we're talking about a joint session or a caucus, because I think the, the role of the interpreter is different in a joint session as opposed to a caucus. And, and in my practice, typically these days, we do not do a joint session other than maybe just a hello, how are you? Um, nice to see you, let's get this resolved kind of thing. So there's not, it, it's not a formal joint opening where an interpreter is sitting there having to go through an, an exact interpretation. In caucus, I think is where I can really connect with people on the language. And even though there's an interpreter that may or may not be there, but if there's an interpreter there, it's almost like we can all have a conversation. And I think there's still some added value in being able to directly have that direct line of communication with a person. And I know that there's different, like I said before, there's different styles of interpretation. There's different skill levels and interpreters. And I, so many times I've, I've been able to catch even misinterpretations, even if it's just a, a accidental, something that was misheard, something was like, you know, a, a number was misheard. I, sometimes they can be making errors of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in what they're saying. And if I'm there to catch it, I can make sure that that, that does not get um, miscommunicated right there on the spot. But I think the greatest value is just getting that comfort level, building the rapport with people, letting them open up to me and just say whatever they want to directly and not having to go through what sometimes is a, is a less smooth process, having to go through a, another person who may be, you know, may be the best interpreter, but may not be the best interpreter. I think there's just still some, some, added value to be able to look somebody in the eye and realize we're talking the same language and, and you can connect with me on that level. I, I wonder how often you get into situations where the parties are sort of in tension with you over who should be the Spanish communicator uh, in these mediations. In other words, maybe they've brought an interpreter and they want the interpreter to kind of explicitly spell out in Spanish what they want the other party to, to hear in a caucus, as opposed to your using your own linguistic skills uh, to convey um, messages? I think mediators and advocates in mediation, we're filtering all the time. That's part of what we do is reframing and, and using our communication skills to best convey a message. Now, in a sense, I think having a language challenge or barrier to overcome is just another type of filtering that we have to do to be able to conduct mediations involving more than one language. And I found that typically what matters to a party is that their message is understood. And the people that I mediate with, they know that if they tell me to communicate something in Spanish, I will do that and it will be understood. And I make sure that they know that I'm gonna convey that message. And I might, just as I would in, in any mediation, if they say something that I think is gonna, you know, 
throw the mediation off the rails, I'm going to have to do some filtering just like I would or any, any mediator would to kind of keep things on track. And I have, on rare occasion, I've seen, let's say, an opposing party bring an interpreter for the mediation, even knowing that I speak Spanish. And even when the opposing counsel is bilingual, they bring an interpreter that they want to make sure they can use to express that, their ideas directly in, in the way they want them expressed directly to the opposing party. And I'm okay with that. And I find that that can work where we will all kind of talk together. And it, 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 if used effectively, I think that helps the opposing party feel like their message is being heard. So it's not just the, the, the party that maybe not um, English language proficient that we're, we're having to um, work with here. I mean, we, we want to make sure that everybody's being heard and understood. So that, that really works for both parties. And that can be done through a combination, as we were talking about earlier, it could be a combination of the professional interpreter, the, the bilingual attorney, the legal assistant, me. It just, it just we kind of work as a team to make sure we're all on the same page and communicating. What would you say um, are the things that make this so difficult? You know, what are the what are the things that are, are hard for you to translate, let's say, or what are the aspects of the cases that you handle that are just difficult to work with in the two different languages? Or um, is there a, a cultural uh, gap um, that you find that really makes things challenging uh, to convey one side to the other? Well, I think sometimes legal jargon can be hard to interpret and, and make sure people understand. It's not necessarily easy for a layperson to understand in English. So then when you overlay a language challenge on top of the, the legal and the jargon, explaining legal concepts in a different language can be difficult. But if you have an interpreter or a mediator or an attorney who both speaks the language and is familiar with the legal concepts, we can overcome those challenges. But if you have an interpreter, let's say, who's not familiar with, let's say, a particular legal, legal field and they're trying to translate, that can be difficult. And that's when I have to come in and make sure the interpreter him or herself understands what's being said so that can be translated and sometimes they might be perfectly fluent in a foreign language like Spanish but if they're unfamiliar with the legal terms that that interpretation is just not going to be effective and I need to make sure that they're actually understanding the legal so that it does get translated effectively in a way that a person a lay person can understand it another thing that can be interesting and challenging is when you have an assumption maybe that an interpreter that speaks a particular language um, is going to be able to communicate perfectly with somebody just because they speak the same language, but if they come from different places and they're, let's say from a different country, uh, you know, you have 
Spanish that's different all over the world. And you've got different phrases and different kind of uh, idiosyncratic expressions that, that may not translate directly. And so you need to be aware of where your interpreter's from and where the party is from so that if there's a way to link them in a, you know, so that their communication can be seamless, that's, that's really important. And accents can be different. Um, words have different meanings in different places, just like, you know, you might watch a, you might watch a movie from Ireland or Scotland. And sometimes I find that I need to have subtitles for some of those, those movies because they're, the, the words are different, the intonation's different, the rhythm's different. There's phrases that I don't get and even seeing the, them on the screen's not gonna help me, but having someone who can relate directly to a person's way of speaking is, is important, even if it's the same language. There's more to it than that. For the listener who is hearing this and thinking, gosh, you know, I, I speak a second language pretty well. I had never thought of actually mediating or arbitrating, you know, in a multilingual context, or maybe uh, a mediator, an arbitrator who wants to attract a clientele that is more comfortable in another language, but isn't quite sure how to, how to handle that. What, what advice would you give somebody either trying to build a practice similar to yours or who um, is trying to serve the needs of a, of a client in a different Yeah, so I think that as mediation continues to be utilized to resolve disputes, the more people you can communicate with is only going to increase your usefulness and your marketability and your ability to help people. Again, communication is what it's all about. So the more you can communicate with people, the more you're going to help them through the mediation process and help them reach a resolution that they might not otherwise be able to reach because of the language barrier, but also because of the comfort level that you can provide for them just by giving them someone to talk to, someone that lets them feel understood. And once they get that comfort level, that's when you can get to the substance of the dispute. Sometimes you just need to get past that initial lack of comfort or misunderstanding before you can really turn to untangling what's really at the bottom of the dispute. Doug Witten, thanks for joining us on Resolutions. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate your time and, and all you're doing for, the, for this section. And I love this. I love this podcast. Thank you. That was Doug Witten of Innovative ADR. You can hear much more about his experience and the work of bilingual dispute resolution at the ABA Dispute Resolution Section Spring Conference, April 22nd to 25th in New Orleans. Thanks to sponsors like the Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution at UNLV William S. Boyd School of Law and National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. You can find more info on the conference at the Dispute Resolution section page at AmericanBar.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resolutions. I'm Larry Schooler.